Welcome to the Journey's Edge podcast. I'm your host, Christian Bao, leading technology and research at Notion Theory. And on this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Peter Weiss on a recent research paper he published titled, quote, Virtual Reality Video Game Improves High Fidelity Memory in Older Adults, end quote which attempted to investigate whether a spatial wayfinding game built in virtual reality could be used as a cognitive intervention to improve detailed, high-fidelity, long-term memory in older adults. Peter has a rich background in the fields of psychology and neurology. He currently serves as an assistant professor in residence at the University of California at San Francisco's Department of Neurology, and he's a faculty member of Neuroscape, which is a translational neuroscience center at UCSF which develops novel brain assessment and optimization tools. Peter's current research is focused on the development of a cognitive training intervention that targets sustained improvement in capabilities for long-term memory and cognitive control. We started our conversation discussing the topic of high-fidelity long-term memory, the critical role the hippocampus plays in stimulating brain activity, and then discuss why Peter and his team decided to use a spatial wayfinding game in virtual reality to test their hypothesis of high-fidelity, long-term memory development in older adults. Let's listen in. Uh, so there is a lot to talk through in this paper, and uh, I don't know if we'll be able to get it all in in this conversation, but to summarize your objective with this study, you were interested in investigating whether a virtual reality experience could be used as a cognitive intervention to improve detailed, high-fidelity, long-term memory in older adults. And uh, we'll we'll just abbreviate long-term memory to LTM just for the conversation. And so the reason you were looking at this problem in particular was because chronic memory loss is usually the first indicator of declining high-fidelity memory. And high-fidelity memory um, is the most precise form of LTM. And uh, in the paper, you'd mentioned that therapeutic interventions so far have not been shown to demonstrate restorative effects for declining LTM. So at least seemingly from my perspective here, you're really trying to find a way to re-stimulate the plasticity of the brain using virtual reality to reverse declining LTM. Did you have the whole package? I, I, don't, I don't have anything more. All right, conversation over. Okay. That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. You know, we, we, I, I mean, it was, honestly, as you described quite well, um, the, the idea here was to uh, see if we could develop a memory therapy. And uh, the high-fidelity memory, um, which really is our most useful form of memory, really our personalities, our, our sense of self rest on those. Um, that uh, capability declines in, uh, naturally as the a- brain ages for most people. And, and uh, of course, we're most aware of diseases in the, in the brain that really can accelerate the decline, such as uh, Alzheimer's disease. So the idea of a memory therapy is, is aimed, uh, as you described quite well, at, at restoring this basic uh, cognitive function, um, at least attenuating its decline. I mean, this uh, uh, when we began this project, uh, nothing like it had, had yet been demonstrated, either with cognitive interventions or anything like pharmaceuticals. Uh, so we aimed at the, the memory engine in the brain, if you will, the hippocampus, and the idea was to stimulate it. And um, a fair amount of work with with in both animal models and, and more recently a bit with humans 
shows that by stimulating the activity, by exercising different systems in the brain um, and, and driving their natural plasticity back up to healthy levels, uh, function can be restored. So this was the approach uh, with Labyrinth aimed at uh, memory, LTM, particularly high-fidelity LTM, which is uh, hippocampal dependent and then branches out into other systems in the brain. Um, the approach that we used in a HMD virtual reality game, which we built from scratch, um, was designed to cover certain very important scientific controls, uh, but also to kind of level the playing field so that as we are um, stimulating new learning, uh, everyone, whatever their history might have been, everyone kind of comes into that uh, regimen with the same um, or against, the, you know, the same test and, and with the, the, the same tools to pull from. Right. And so um, just before we jump into how the study was actually um, conducted and the methods there, um, you, imagine, you, you mentioned Labyrinth um, VR and, and in a previous conversation, we, we, we were kind of talking about the um, cognitive load that a, say, spatial wayfinding experience places on the individual. And that's kind of the highest form of cognitive load in terms of the exercise that you could do. So um, I wonder if you could just touch a little bit more about kind of spatial wayfinding in particular before we get into uh, the study itself. Right. Um, and, and so the, the approach to challenge the hippocampus um, and, and, you know, to allow for an, an adaptive challenge. In other words, as, uh, as the system is working, you know, keep raising the bar. So that you're, you're pushing, 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 just like one would do exercise at the gym. Um, so spatial wayfinding has been shown again in animal models over decades and, and more recently a little bit in humans has been shown to place uh, the uh, strongest demand on the, the region in the hippocampus that is also the most critical for forming new high fidelity memories, memories with lots of rich contextual information. And that makes sense actually, if you think about the demands of learning an entirely new neighborhood and, and determining the optimum route so that you're most efficient with your body. I mean, that, that, that's kind of, there's a logical flow there. And uh, the, the uh, hippocampus uh, is uh, critical for uh, wayfinding. Um, and by having a rapid uh, exposure to a, a neighborhood and a, a, a rapid test to show that you've learned your way, uh, we're really putting demands on the hippocampus. And then as you uh, learn and you show that you've learned a new route, we make the neighborhood bigger and the errands different. And then the neighborhood bigger and the errands more different. So uh, what this does is, is in continually increasing the challenge uh, and really uh, working out the uh, LTM system in a particular way aimed at the, the hippocampus's uh, most critical function. Peter's research involved two separate experiments, each of which were a randomized control study, which I cover in brief, 
and then Peter walks through the setup of each experiment along with the outcomes that were being measured. Let's jump back in. The study itself is is fascinating, and so <clears throat> uh, just to, again, um, you know, touching on on how is it conducted, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So, uh, for the study, you used a, a randomized control study, um, and just to touch on that for viewers, uh, this is a type of study where participants um, of the study are randomly assigned to either a control or an experimental group, and then this is intended to reduce the bias that might be present if you were instead to self-select. Which participants, which participants go into what group, and this way the only expected difference between the two groups is uh, just the outcome being studied. And so here you ran two separate experiments. The first experiment involved a gnomic dis- discrimination task, um, and I'm going to let you touch on that and explain that because you can probably do a better job than I can, but uh, that first experiment looked at that with 26 older adults, average age of 70, and 27 younger adults between ages 20 to 29, and this first experiment was really meant to generate a baseline measure between the two, and then in the second experiment, um, you put 49 older adults around age 69 through the labyrinth VR experience that you made. Um, so I'll just kind of let you you walk us through both of these experiments that led to the results of the paper. Yeah, sure, Christian. So um, let me touch on just the, the approach in a, a RCT randomized control trial design, um, and particularly with, with cognitive training. So RCTs, we're all familiar with now because that's how the uh, vaccine that I've had, maybe you've had, you know, were, were demonstrated to be efficacious and safe. Um, so in this approach, as you pointed out, um, the participants are blind to whether they're in the active treatment condition or in a placebo control condition. And, and the reason you, you're running both and, and, and people are blind is you, you might expect that the outcomes just from exposure and practice will improve for everybody. And what you're trying to do is using a statistical comparison is to show that the active treatment, in our case, labyrinth, had a bigger effect than the people who, who just got better through practice in the, in the control uh, condition. That's speaking very broadly. There's another factor that's really important in what we did and that really is a standard in cognitive training, cognitive interventions. And that is that the outcome measures that we used focused on tests of high-fidelity LTM that were apart from the uh, work that was either done in the labyrinth active game or in the placebo control games. In other words, these are really standalone tests that are given to everyone at, at the very beginning. So we consider that baseline, their baseline performance. And then after all of their training regimen is complete. And these, it's the, the performance on these outcome measures that are uh, that we're most interested in, because that will will show that there's transfer, that we are, by doing this procedure or that procedure, we're actually improving your ability uh, to uh, retrieve highly detailed information accurately that wasn't at all part of the, the training experience you had. In terms of the experiments, then, this... Uh, flows to what was the key outcome measure. So the mnemonic discrimination task is uh, well-established in the memory literature, used broadly for a couple of reasons. It's, it's, uh, you know, very robust and reliable. 
and it's been proved to depend upon healthy hippocampal function. So the mnemonic discrimination task where you're seeing pictures and judging ones that are that are really uh, that are the old ones you studied before are very similar, but they're, they're actually new. You're making these fine discriminations. Um, you can't do that regardless of age or whatever, unless you're, you're hip, you can't do it reliably unless your hippocampus, uh, is functioning normally. Okay. In experiment one, uh, we wanted to get the baseline performance on this key task with a group of uh, healthy younger adults and a group of healthy older adults. We know that they're cognitively healthy, the older adults, because they went all went through batteries of tests to get a cognitive characterization. Um, and as uh, we've published and other uh, labs have published, uh, healthy older adults perform at a significant decrement in the accuracy of their high fidelity memory using this test. So that was our key outcome that we then used in the labyrinth experiment at baseline and then after training for both the labyrinth and the control groups so that we could see, first of all, did their performance uh, improve after training? And then by, by comparison, this is cross-sectional, so it's it's, you know, a, a rough, but an interesting comparison. If they improved, well, gee, how did they do against the younger adult standard? Because we know at baseline, and in fact, just like in an experiment one and experiment two at baseline, the older adults were, had diminished performance. For this research, Peter and his team built a custom spatial wayfinding game that was adaptive to the participants' progress. Meaning if the participants successfully completed a task, the challenge was always increased to create a moving target. I was really curious to learn more about the design decisions that influenced the VR game they built to be used with older adults. Let's jump back in. Uh, so you you mentioned uh, the the Labyrinth VR uh, experience and, and this being kind of an adaptive spatial wayfinding experience. So, um, you know, in the second experiment with that group of older, healthy adults, uh, what was the actual VR experience like for them uh, when they were actually going through it? There, there are two or three key elements. We wanted to throw everything at this proof of concept that, that uh, a memory therapy could be developed. Um, so the, the uh, head-mounted display VR is, is really immersive. And then we accentuated that by having participants walk through the game. They, they're, uh, you know, we, we went through iterations, but in, in the study, uh, the data was collected where participants uh, stood in a not too large of a platform that had a railing so that they were safe and they could reach out. Because when they're wearing the, the HMD VR and they're walking through the game, you know, the, they, have, they could walk for uh, 100 meters easily. So, um, and sorry, just to interrupt, when we're talking about walking, uh, we're meaning the physical act of picking feet up and down? Yes, as we okay. refer to it in the paper as ambulation. Okay. There are trackers on their ankles that are picked up by an infrared camera. So the, the, by rotating their head movement and by walking, which causes the, their ankle heights to, to vary, they propel themselves through the game. 
And by directing their visual attention with these head movements as they see the, the game, which and they can look up and they can look down, and the skyline would go up into skyscrapers in the in the urban environment. Um, they are truly navigating. Of course, they're only navigating after they're they've done learning, and it's the learning that's challenging the hippocampus. So we wanted to use the HMD VR for this really immersive environment so that the learning would be steep and then uh you you explore by walking you demonstrate that you've you've learned the neighborhood learned the path to the errands by walking this operates the motoric system and in the way the uh, brain is laid out in humans mammalian brain the the motor system is receiving efferent copies even when you're not moving it's, it's receiving a copy of everything that you're seeing and, 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 and plan, planning actions for, really. We wanted to exercise that very, that environmental validity of seeing something that even though, yes, it's computer generated, but once you're into it, it feels pretty real and you are really absorbed. And then you have to walk through it. You're, you're uh, moving yourself through it. So we put all of these conditions in, and in the last uh, element, Christian, which is is uh, had not been done before in in an approach like this, is the it's an adaptive challenge in the game. So you have to repeat the Aaron trial unless you can perform in within eighty percent of the optimal number of steps. You really have to do it right, uh, and then. It, it, as you demonstrate that you've had the memory, because by time and distance you've you've uh, completed the that little test efficiently, then and you just to through. touch on the test for the quick story. So, so in the sense of adaptive, you said within kind of eighty percent of the correct number of steps taken. So, was it a case where they were given an errand, um, and then they had to complete that errand by um, kind of? memorizing or, or, or remembering the space itself and then navigating to that within X amount of steps? Yes. But the very first neighborhood is so small and so compact with only a few possible turns, maybe 20 turns. They can lay that memory down and, and, and kind of get up to speed. But uh, once you're into the larger environments, and then there's also a village environment, so you learn something that's completely new with new errands, uh, you are having to uh, not, not just follow a path that you learn by rote. It's not procedural memory at all. You are having to make choices on the basis of the visual cues that you see around you, and there's also an audio track. The audio cues are more modest um, by design. But you, you're having to choose which turns, uh, and you can either take a long route where you won't advance because it's not optimal, or you can take the short route. Um, and I'm sorry, I, one thing that the, I, I failed to mention, which to, will make this have more sense, when the trial begins, you land what we call spawning point. You land at a random position away from the errands. So you don't know where you're starting the trial. And you have to uh, select the right sequence and turns to, uh, in order to do it the errands quickly enough that you can then advance. And everybody wants to advance. It's a natural competitive uh, nature that all the participants uh, felt. 
And just one question out of my own curiosity on the on the adaptive part. Um, with the environments, was it a case where, uh, as you mentioned, you start with that kind of small city environment. Um, once they did that first errand, did that city then grow and get a little bit bigger? And then they kind of had to retain memory of the first area as the city's growing and they're continuing to do errands? Or, or was the environment changed almost every time? No, it's all new. The errands, no errand is repeated. Um you know, the, the, the graphics, we, we built this in-house. Uh, Neuroscape has a, a media uh, development center, a tech media development center. Um, we aren't doing it at the level of, uh, you know, a, a commercial game company. But the graphics are nice. They're Unity assets. They're all new. The buildings are all new. Everything is, is new other than some of the re- repetition of the street signs, the street lights, um, the you know, some of the urban noises or village noises. Here, Peter discusses the results of his paper and touches on some of his hypotheses that were made at the start of the study, the degree of improvement for the labyrinth training group comparatively, and he covers some insights we can extract about the effect the labyrinth game had on high-fidelity long-term memory in older adults. Let's jump back to the conversation. And now getting into the results, uh, which are very, very interesting. Um, and you can, you kind of touched on this uh, a little bit before, but um, versus me talking about the results um, and taking your thunder, uh, I'm actually going to let you uh, go ahead and introduce us to that. <laughs> well, uh, so the first uh, question was, is there just, just within the, the uh, 49 or so, 50 participants, who went through the, this study where they invested about five weeks of their time all in, you know, what did the uh, memory, the high fidelity LTM outcome for the labyrinth group turn out to be higher? So it, first of all, is there a, even if it's just this, this small increment, uh, was there a gain from the labyrinth training relative to placebo control? Yes, there was. So, wow. That's uh, um, a, br- a brand new finding and, and very exciting for us and, and then opens up all sorts of questions maybe we'll get a chance to get to as to, well, what can we learn more about that? But then the second part of the results that was um, surprising, uh, certainly unexpected by me, is that the, the degree of improvement for the Labyrinth training group was of, of uh, such a, a magnitude that the older adults on average got back to the level of performance of the younger adults on average on this mnemonic uh, discrimination task. So in, in a general way, what the results show is that Labyrinth provided uh, a therapy for the high-fidelity LTM performance of the older adults, and the therapy restored those older adults, at least with by the time the training had ended, back up to the level that they probably had, again, we're looking at averages, um, when they were younger adults. So that's, that is a greater than expected outcome. And and there, uh, w- what was the dosage uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the older adults' exposure to VR over what period of time? Uh, so they were on task for twelve hours. Uh, th- those were broken up into 
uh, 15 um, visits because uh, Labyrinth in, in the, where they're walking through the game is, it's a bit taxing. Um, it's a mild, mild acute um, exercise. And um, so we, we would give them little rest breaks in between trials. And uh, if you net that down to the time on task, which is the way you'd look at dosage, uh, it was approximately 12 hours over about a 30-day period. And so what's interesting there is you mentioned the mild exercise part, um, because I think just about every week, there's probably an article in some newspaper or television publication uh, stating that uh, exercise has cognitive benefits. Exercise is good for you. Everyone should walk more often. And so um, in, you know, I, I imagine there, there's likely been quite a bit of research done prior in terms of um, exercise affecting um, the, the, the cognitive side of this. And so to what degree do you kind of maybe presume that the VR experience had on LTM versus say, with and without the mod exercise. And I'm just thinking of a case where the labyrinth experience maybe instead of actually physically walking just involves something like tele teleporting or continuous walking with the controller, how, how that may have affected the results. Yeah, and of course, it, it will, we'll touch on this. I think that, that these are conditions that we, we are, are working on now. I mean, we're collecting data against those conditions. Um, there, there's just no question that uh, exercise as it, as it uh, increases metabolism, brings more oxygen into the body and therefore into the brain, which uses most of our oxygen uh, or relative to other parts of the body in any case, uh, that it, it, it provides tremendous benefits. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, because Labyrinth was kind of a moonshot, uh, we wanted to put every, everything on it uh, and exercise being part of that component. Um, where it is clear that exercise benefits cognition generally, there is not yet evidence that it uh, would selectively benefit memory over something else. In other words, the uh, mnemonic discrimination task, um, you can you can take the tests. You say you've been sedentary. You're you're a seventy year old who's been sedentary, and then you undertake six months or a year of of really picking up your your physical condition, your physical exercise. Will you perform better just because your brain health is improved? Yeah, I I think that there's some indication of that. In terms of labyrinth, we do not yet know how uh, significant the uh, HMDVR component as a way to present wayfinding is over just doing it on a kind of a 2.5D tablet. We're developing that. We're going to test that question. So we'll, we will be able to learn what is the, the contribute contribution really that comes from this super immersive environment I was talking about. Uh, we can get pretty close to the uh, visual aspects of an all novel series of neighborhoods and trials for you to learn. So then it, it really gets down to the, the immersion. Then another question gets to be, well, 
what about exercise? So in the uh, labyrinth uh, version that's published in the paper, people are walking through. We have another set of participants. We were just starting when the pandemic shut us down, but we're restarting now, just beginning to, where participants will, will be stationary in, and move through the game. Now, they won't be teleporting in the way that you might see in other video games where you use a controller and you click point to point to point. Um, because that's that's a very different sensation. It doesn't really engage your visual attention and and place any demand on your motoric uh, pre-planning. So we've developed a, a system where you, you are using a hand controller, but you're you're in essence pointing not for direction that you again achieve by head movement wearing an HMD VR, but instead of walking you point, in, in essence, a, a, a wand to show a light laser to show where you want to go, and you can vary the speed a little bit. So you have the sensation of sitting on a scooter because we create these virtual handlebars, and you're, it's as though you're opening the throttle on a scooter, and that's how you move through the game. So you, you're replicating everything with a published study except that you're not walking, you're sitting. Well, then the next question um, gets to be uh, what is the component of the, the HMD VR versus something that's more played on a, on a tablet, which then could incidentally be remote, easily be remote. So it could be a therapy at home. And we're building that. It'll probably be um, the latter part of 2021 before we're actually able to test that with naive participants. Later in the conversation, Peter wanted to highlight two things in particular he learned following the completion of this study. The first insight focused on learning, and the second insight highlighted engagement. Let's listen back in. Two things um, that are uh, morsels I learned along the way. One, one is, is just scientific, and one is working with people. Um, the, the scientific part is that... Um, w- in, in the published study, everyone and, and what we're collecting now where people are going to be sitting on the scooter, everyone will go through the same um, number of uh, the same dosage. And when we, we analyzed the data after the manuscript was written and really, really, you know, broke it into nubbins, this is, I actually foreshadowed this a bit in the discussion in the paper. Uh, it's, it's clear that we, we want to use the adaptive system, but we want people to reach a certain threshold. So if they need to stay in class, if that's a fair analogy, it, you know, if they need to stay with it for 20 hours instead of 14, that's an approach that we want to take. So we want to, to there has to be a ceiling somewhere, but we want to see if we can bring a therapeutic result, not just for, you know, seven or eight of 10, but maybe we can bring it for nine of 10, if not even 10 of 10 at some level, just by letting them um, work at it longer because people all learn at different rates. Right. So it's making the dosage um, uh, achievement-based versus time-based, right? Yes. to Right. And go for, for saturation rather than just a fixed dosage. The other thing that, that um, I, I just found intriguing, I've worked 
uh, with quite a few groups of, of older adults and even amnestic patients <clears throat> in this um, field for some time. And I've never seen a group get so excited about their their treatment. Now, these are people who are who are coming into our lab. It's not as though they're walking down, you know, the street. They they have to make a schlep in and, and out to do this. They were so excited they didn't want the game to stop. And nearly every one of them has said, look, if there's any way, you know, when you have another version, you have something else, we really want to come back and do it. Yes, of course, they're interested. They, they were research participants. They're interested in helping science, but they really liked doing the task. And they, they want to feel that success and that achievement again. And that was my conversation with Peter Weiss. He and his team are doing incredibly important work in developing cognitive training interventions for long-term memory. And if you're interested in learning more, you can find the study and Peter's research work attached to this podcast episode. If you're interested in staying on top of the latest research developments in 3D, augmented reality, and virtual reality, please consider joining the Journey's Edge Discord channel. Separately, if you're currently a researcher and would like to have your research considered for an episode on the podcast, please contact us. That's all for now. See you next time.